I have an inherent lack of respect now for childless people's takes on the world. I, I just do. <laughs> and I know that's wrong. I know that they have their own experiences. I know that they might have more perspective on certain things because they're not as preoccupied as we are. But whenever somebody's fretting about the state of the world and they're being depressive and they're doing the little art, I just, I just don't, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Wait, does this mean that the people who have four kids, like my brother, do you have more respect? Is there a multiplier effect if you have more kids? I'll give them a hearing. I don't have to agree, but if you have a lot of kids, then yes, I'll give you more of a hearing. I feel like there's like a curve. Right. Like no kids and then one mm. kid, two kids, three kids. And then at some point diminishing returns. Yeah, it's gotta go back down because like clearly you don't know how to use a rubber or like, Yeah, yeah. I feel like if you're Philip Rivers, like you how do you have time to observe anything? I'm not gonna listen to you. You've got like eighty kids. <laughs> the only time he's observing something is when there's you know twenty two people on a field. Yeah. This is his life. My mind went somewhere else. <laughs> you built that <laughs> I was about, like, yeah, I was, I was, my mind was in the same place. I mean, he lived in San Diego when that team moved to LA and would commute from San Diego to LA. He has a million kids. I can't remember how many. It might be nine. And I'm just thinking, how, how do you have the time for that? You, you have the time for that? Well, San Diego to LA commute, just driving up there to practice. But like that's what Kawhi Leonard was doing last year. It's not that far-fetched. He took the chopper, though. Who, Kawhi? Yeah. Oh, wow. I just feel like if you have car service, like that's no different than driving from some other parts of LA. But apparently, from what I read, he just had this big van and he drove it like the way a dad does, driving the kids to Knott's Berry Farm. Not the conversion van, the Chevy Astro van, like one of those kind of. I don't know. I need to look this up now. I'm very curious. A 40 Conoline? Yeah. Shaq drove a, a Chevy Astro van. It was like tricked out though. Yeah, like. 23 inch rims on it and had a Superman grill on the front. Does Exhibit still do uh, Pimp My Ride? Uh, I wish he did. That show's been off the air for about 15 years. That's too bad. It's the only thing that could bring this country together <laughs> if he uh, comes back and he starts pimping rides again. Welcome to the Haber Show. That is Amino Hassan from Levitard Show, also SiriusXM NBA Radio, also Cinephobe. It's the podcast where Amino Hassan and Zach Harper watch poorly rated movies on Rotten Tomatoes and ascertain whether they're accurately poorly rated or if they're getting a bad shape. That's Ethan Strauss uh, over there in the Bay. And I'm so glad to have you back on the show, Ethan. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm looking up the Phil Rivers commute of yours. He doesn't play for the Chargers <laughs> anymore, where he would just drive on up from San Diego County uh, to the L.A. area for practice. And I'm just fascinated. I'm fascinated by long commutes, Tom fascinated why somebody who has the means would subject themselves to it uh but i'm also fascinated with the nba playoffs and everything surrounding it so thanks for having me on the podcast i i believe you went on cowherd recently is that true uh that is true that's true i mean did we did we just have colin cowherd on the show just now <laughs> oh my I god yeah, did I, he, I, I really have one bit i always return to because i love the analogies where, you know you know you could be involved in something but not be of it from 2019 like you know you know austin texas it's in texas but it's not of texas Ethan, i've asked you this before have you ever done his show in person no i've never been on set it's only been remotely i, I did it a couple of times when he was at espn and he's got this thing where he asks a question when you start to answer he will very theatrically lean forward and like yeah right tom you've, you've seen it right like 
where he's like, I'm listening to you very intently. And it, it, the first time it happened, it threw me off. <laughs> the man's a pro. It's, uh, hey, hey, it, you got to you gotta convey that. I think that's, that's why, that's one of the many reasons why I could never be that type of person. I could never do a talk show like a Jimmy Kimmel. It would be so difficult for me to communicate interest in strangers. I would do a very poor job. I'm having a tough time right now with you, Ethan. What? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Ah, Coward does this thing where he he'll grab you with an analogy that is just on. It sounds great in theory, and then like two hours later, you'll think about it. And you'll be like, I don't know if that analogy actually works. Yeah, it's it's definitely like one of those uh, whodunit TV shows where you're totally immersed, and later on, you go, I, you know, I don't like. Why would Kate Winslet? have to <laughs> steal heroin from the evidence locker when she's living in Philadelphia, which is the heroin capital of the United States, and she's a detective. I mean, it just seems like you would go outside and get it. It makes no sense. It's like a Dominican getting lost in downtown Beirut. Is that... It's like, yeah, it is. And you're like, wait a second. What did Colin want to know out of your brain? What did he what did he ask you about? He was really into the Lakers. I think that he is uh, selling the Lakers short. He's short selling the Lakers. And I still don't I still don't know what that means, by the way. <laughs> five, five months later. He doesn't think they're going to do well. He's borrowing stocks at a certain price and then selling it at a lower price later and reaping the difference. The Lakers they're AMC stock. They're AMC stock. Yeah, sure, they seem great now. You're really happy with them right now. But are you going to be happy with them later? Is that going to hold value for you? Yeah. it's Anthony uh, Davis. Anthony <laughs> Davis. Same thing as the movie theater. Sounds great a year ago. <laughs> Not so much now. <laughs> Not reliable. He's in, he's, he's in the theater one day. Next day, not in the theater. That's not a superstar. Not a superstar. LeBron James, superstar. Superstar. Yeah, very few superstars. We throw it, we throw around the term. Not always true. Not many superstars. Um, he wanted he we were talking Lakers, we we're talking AD, uh, that situation long term. He was really interested in the article I wrote on the local ratings, uh, giving evidence to how drafted stars have way more resonance on a local level and do way better than these situations where they sign a superstar free agent. And I think that pattern has held up. It makes intuitive sense, but it just does go to show you that fans connect to a guy they see grow up versus a guy who just comes on board. And I think that we're seeing that reflect on the local level. I'm sorry. So you're going to have to like break down your methodology here for me. Cause I don't think that's something you could just do a very, generic well Uh-oh. this team was built around a drafted star so let's see their ratings this one had free agents to see their ratings i mean that seems like a very quick and dirty way to do that why why wouldn't that work <laughs> new york fans are obviously going nuts for kevin knox and not so much julius randall let's <laughs> let's make this clear well because I, kevin knox was drafted mm-hmm. they have a little special place in their heart for kevin knox and yeah. julius randall on the other hand higher mm-hmm. gun yeah, hired gun. Yeah, total mercenary, that Randall. Um, yeah, I, I think it's funny that Amin asked that question, like the methodology for doing this wouldn't work. I mean, the pattern is pretty strong. You're looking at five out of the six top teams are totally built through the draft. The other one is the Spurs, who have actually fallen off in popularity, and at least Greg Popovich 
Name them for me. Name, name so, them. so you can pick them apart. Not yes, so you exactly. can be. Not so, so you can, can be convinced. No, not so, so you can be convinced. Because your methodology <laughs> is 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 going to be rudimentary. Like that's my thing. It's like when you when you try to uh, ascribe certain things like that. Like there are statistical devices you do to eliminate the noise, as opposed to just saying, "Yep, that one's got one of those guys." So that checks the. Like it doesn't quite work like that statistically. Why would something that would be intuitively so be so? Who knows why? Okay, so Warriors, Jazz, Blazers, Bucks, Sixers. Okay, so all of those teams, you're saying with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell in Utah, saying uh, Steph Curry and Draymond Green in, in Golden State, Portland, Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, Sixers, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid. Jazz and Blazers only show in town. Sixers and Warriors, major metropolises, and teams that have been very good lately. Wait, but how does that help you on a local level? We're talking per, per capita. We're talking percentage. Oh, if, as far as the big metropolises? Yeah. Um, hold on. If I, if I, if you give me a second, I, like, I already, <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I already poked, I already poked the whole. Man, approach the bench. <laughs> it was a pretty convincing <laughs> list, I got to say, no, for ja- those five. Ja- Jazz and Blazers, like, get them out of here. Where else are they watching? Of course. Oh, they're not turning <laughs> the on the goddamn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Arrayal Salt Lake. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what were the other ones. Uh, so Bucks. Philly and Golden. Bucks, same thing. What else are they watching? Green Bay Packers. Green Bay Packers from I mean, up to December. Brew Crew. Brew Crew. Brew Crew, baby. Brew Crew is, doesn't kick in until May, probably. So, the, like, they don't no, have cleanup any cleanup hitters doing great on my fantasy team. They don't Garcia? have any competition. Woo! Raking it. They don't have any competition. Raking so, it. So, Philly and Golden State because they've been awesome lately. So there's residual there. Philly because they've been really good lately. Okay. Well, let's take a look at some of the others. We've got the Clippers and the Nets in the bottom five. That's because they're they're always going to have a low percentage share in the metropolises they play in. The Lakers outside of the top ten. That's that's concerning. That is that is pretty concerning. That is bizarre. So no one no one's watching the Lakers. Then again. The Rams went to the Super Bowl. The, oh, uh, the do Dodgers. This. It's LeBron in LA. I mean, it's LeBron in LA. And they're out of the top you 10. Can, you can, no, you can do this a, with any pattern, point. by the way. No, no, but, but Ethan, that's the point. That's why when, when people use statistics to prove these things, the math filters out the noise and tells you how much of this had to do with that specific factor. That's why I say you can't sit here and just go quick and dirty. Da, da, da. It's too rudimentary. It's. To, to draw conclusions off of. So what do it, I need to do? Do I need to create an acronym and, and do a chart no, and then it becomes no, more true? No. See, like, all you're doing is you're, you're, you're just putting more lipstick on the pig. Like, <laughs> acronyms and branding and all that. No, I'm saying you have to do actual math. You got to do a, an actual study where you're tracking across a number of different uh, precursors or determining factors, and then you run a, a, a regression, and then the regression will spit back out how important each different aspect is. That's how it works in, in real life. I want to shift the conversation just a little bit to what seems to be a press conference crisis among media right now, where uh, there's another conversation about fans interrupting the play um, and abusing players on the floor, whether it's throwing a water bottle or spitting on them or just running onto the court. Separate conversation. Um, 
But the idea that press conferences are being, and this has become a story because uh, Naomi Osaka has decided to withdraw from the French Open after the Grand Slam committee. I don't even, I didn't even know this thing existed. Basically said, uh, if basically threatened her that um, if she decided to not talk, then she wouldn't be allowed to play. If I got that wrong, please let me know. Yeah, I, I thought Roland Garris was a tennis player until yesterday. So we are uh, you're in good company. OK, good. Thank you, Ethan. Um, so then the, the conversation goes to a larger conversation, which is what's the point of media? Why? Why do we do these press conferences if um, if it's causing people uh, mental harm by having to speak at press conferences? And the thing that I would say is Naomi. Osaka is not representative of all athletes. I think she has in particular a um, a trigger or some sort of anxiety with speaking publicly or with facing critical questions in press conferences. And she said, I don't want to do it anymore. Ethan, what was your I know you write a lot about media, sports media, but what was your what was your read on this situation and how it how it relates to NBA press conferences that you've attended and become part of the story? Well, I don't know everything about this situation. Um, it's tennis. I, I don't totally know how it all works. Uh, like I said, I thought Roland Garris, I thought that she was playing a tennis player named Roland Garris when I read about it. And I thought that's a, that's an unusual name for a female tennis player. I, I swear that is exactly what I thought. You when thought I was he was the third baseman me. for the Phillies. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what I thought. So, uh, looking into it, I, I'm kind of flying blind on it. Uh, but I do think and I will write about this, there's almost this misnomer that this is valueless, that nothing comes out of it, that it's all stupid. And that's kind of the cool kid take, that these press conferences are dumb and nothing comes out of them and who needs them. And that's just not the case, at least in an NBA setting. A lot comes out of these press conferences, things we remember, part of the back and forth between teams and playoff series. I always say that Half the things you know about Clay Thompson or fans love about Clay Thompson, the legend of Clay, came out of press conferences he didn't want to do. And the idea that these press conferences are really boring, sure. Uh, a lot of the time is wasted, sure. But that's almost like when you're watching the TV show Gold Rush and you're saying, oh, what is even the point of this? They're spending all this time digging around and just dealing with dirt. I mean, there's this is totally pointless. Why even bother? No, they're they're looking for the gold. They're looking for those moments that you're going to attach to the athlete uh, that is going to become part of the narrative. And guess what? We did a natural experiment of what it looks like when there isn't media around. Forgive me for sounding like I'm defending our profession. You can say that I'm, I don't know, self-interested, but I swear it's just my take on it. And I, I have no issue criticizing us collectively if need now, be. Now, this is just my opinion. Now, this is just me. Now, I'm not I'm not sourcing anybody. Now, this is just me. <laughs> Solid Greenberg. But um, we ran the natural experiment. We did it. We had no media around, really, in the bubble. And when they were around, they were a layer uh, apart from the players. They were behind the glass. And did interest go up in that bubble in 2020? No. Uh, the interest totally tanked. So I do think that as human beings, we understand things through narrative, through story. That means it can't just be the players playing out there. We're not going to look at these players and have zero connection to them, not knowing about anything they're doing and glom onto it the same way. So it is necessary for a sport to grow. 
uh, that players do media availability. It's annoying, it's obnoxious, but for the most part, we do all benefit. The media side benefits, uh, the athlete side benefits, and I can't tell you what Osaka wants out of all of this. I'm not an expert on any of that, uh, but generally it's true. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Um, I know that there's other weird stuff there where she loses on clay and, and it gets in her head and stuff her sister was saying. All that stuff, I don't know. But generally speaking, the media availability works out well for both sides. And I think that a lot of that is getting lost right now. I thought it was interesting that the the Grand Slam committee said that it was a competitive issue. Mm. That Osaka, by uh, ducking the interviews, so to speak, is gaining an advantage over the other tennis players. And I, I didn't really think of it that way. Is that this? They didn't. They didn't say it was a financial issue. Like, hey, we we need for the the good of the business for you to speak to the media, to develop narrative, develop stories, and have real access to the to the star athlete who is the highest paid female athlete in the world. Osaka is. Um, but they said it was a competitive issue, which I imagine some of the athletes privately. This is my speculation. I don't have any inside information here. Mm. Is that? When they're saying this is a competitive issue, I would not be surprised if there are people on the inside, play, athletes being like, I have to do this every day. Yeah. And this is a pain. And yes. if you don't come down hard on her, I'm not going to do it either. Because yeah. this is more time away from whatever recovery room. Après moi le deluge, or however you'd say that in, in the proper French. Maze, is that right? Après moi le deluge. I don't know what you guys just said. Deluge just After me, the deluge comes. Yeah, what's a delusion mean? Uh, it's when someone like thinks they're really hot shit, but they're really not. Like, oh, you're so deluge. <laughs> There's a good dad joke right there. After me, the flood. And if the lead dog doesn't want to do it, then nobody will. And then so, they've got a big problem because so they're not I- a sport that's at the top of the docket. I have I have a a direct corollary to this, right? Spurs. Once up, once upon a time, why are you giving away my my shit, man? Ah, I just knew you were going for it. it. Once upon a time, NBA teams played their play, their best players as many minutes as possible. 38, 39, 40 minutes. And they played every game if they could. And then San Antonio started doing this thing where they're like, "You know what? I'm going to sit my guys on some of these games." I, on some of these trips, they're not even going to get on the plane. They're just going to stay at home. And everyone swooned at how smart the Spurs were. Oh, my God. They're so much smarter than everybody else. Greg Popovich did it again. Oh, my God. This, you know, Sounds like Trump. I know. Just <laughs> everything about them is awesome. And then uh, what ends up happening at the time, I was like, yes, in a very selfish self-focused way yeah it's smart you're getting an advantage because your your stars are fresher when you go to the playoffs you, you get deeper runs you get better basketball out of them you're better when it matters the most but the problem is from a business standpoint they're taking advantage of this loophole it's like if we all ordered a pizza and said everyone's going to chip in and then the pizza comes and you say oh yeah i ain't got it yes it's brilliant if you're trying to eat for free but at some point, if everyone else starts to emulate what you're doing, now we have an unpaid for pizza. And same thing here. The more, more teams emulate, the more we're going to have a problem with some of these national TV games. And our, our business is not going to be as lucrative as it once was because in the name of 
competitive advantage and doing the quote-unquote smart thing, we're all hurting the business. Well, that's the fear from in this tennis world is that if Osaka can say, I got to sit this out because I have mental health issues, what's to stop everybody else from saying, well, yeah, me too, I got the issues too. And then they all sit it out, and now our, our business is hurt because a fundamental pillar of it is not being executed. Yeah, and it's not to say that she doesn't have those issues. It's just that anybody right. could conceivably say they have them. There's no way to prove right. it wrong. It's why I, I tell people, if you want to get out of something, and I do have the occasional migraine, I don't want I don't want anybody I'm working with to think I'm lying if I say I got it. But nobody it. can disprove the migraine. If you say you have a migraine and you can't do something, there's no way to prove that you're lying on that on that front. And that, so, that reminds me of when uh, Lou Aldang had – Spinal fluid leaking out of his back, which is something I suffered through before. Steve Kerr had the same thing. He he missed he missed the playoff game with the Bulls because he had this spinal leakage. But they said in the report that he was missing the game because of headaches. Mm. I remember being like, "Yo, calling it a headache is like you lose a limb in battle or something." <laughs> like that, being like, "Oh, tis but a scratch, a scratch. Your arms off? No, it isn't. Well, what's that then?" I've had worse. You liar. Come on, you pansy. Like what Lou Aldang was going through was there was no spinal fluid cushioning his skull. And so his brain is bashing up against his skull and just creating these amazingly painful head headaches, migraines, and he's passing out every three seconds. That's what he was dealing with. And in the in the report, it was like, Lou Aldang out with headaches. Yeah, LeBron's going to pressure the Lakers to put headaches in the injury report on Anthony Davis just to pressure Davis to play. That's that's what's going to happen. That's going to be the, the the Machiavellian choice by LeBron there. But yeah, I can't speak to whatever Osaka's going through. I I I don't know. I don't know much about the interplay in tennis, but if you're running an organization, even though there are journalists who are saying, please, we're terrible, we're awful, uh, punish us, deny us access, as though the athletes are just going to, hey, I love you now, be my friend, because they tweeted that. I, I don't know what's going on there. Um, it, it not only runs against the practicality for the organization, it runs against uh, professional incentive. But it, it isn't it isn't the type of thing that you should abide as an organization, um, as a governing body, unless you want to have more problems. And so who knows? We'll see it all. We'll see it all play out. I do think we're going to see a lot more of this. I do think that there's a generational aspect of this. I do think that people of a certain age, let's call it Gen Z, um, have been marinating in the social media world and it's not healthy and it does hurt one's mental health. And uh, fame at an early age right now, I think, is even harder to deal with than it was a while ago. And the scrutiny is even more painful. I'm not making light of it. I'm just noting in a non, oh, this generation soft kind of way. I'm just noting that I think we're going to see more of this in the future. I want to I wanna be that guy. I want to be the old guy. I, I, I accept this burden. Because there's a part of me that absolutely says this generation of people who grew up exposing their entire lives on social media are now struggling with the ramifications of fame and instant access and what that does to their self-esteem. Naomi Osaka, I don't know if you guys are up to speed with this, but like she's dating this rapper uh, named YBN Corday. 
and they do a lot of stuff together. Curated social media. It's not, it's not just like, hey, man, let me just turn on my phone. And, it's like the type of shit where there's a, a performative PR relationship there's, online. There's, well, I don't know. I mean, th- their relationship is real, but they do a lot of stuff. Like for the grand. Yeah, I, I should be well, like, they, yeah, yeah. They, their relationship is real, but they're yeah. doing a lot of performing. Performative, yes, yes, yeah. performing the relationship and like Q and A's and all that stuff, and I, I, like, I can't help but say, like, yeah, man, maybe you need to disconnect off of this shit. Maybe don't put everything in your life out there all the time. The other thing is, and uh, I was on Levitar today, and Chris Whittingham brought this up. As a profession. Sports is pretty much an exercise in mental stress. Yeah. Right? Like, most of us have jobs. Most people in the world have jobs where you go to work, and some days are good days, and some days are bad days, but the vast majority was just the day. You did it, and, you know, who knows what the results are going to be. We'll find out in time. And sports does not afford you that. It's one of the few professions where there's instant feedback, constant. Not only feedback in terms of success and failure in a binary uh, kind of construct, but also feedback in terms of all these other motherfuckers have an opinion on how you did your job that day, and and we'll let you know about it from so, unqualified people too. So it's just right, Joe, qualified, Joe Schmo, qualified and unqualified, right? Do you think Nurkic is cool that Kendrick Perkins is is criticizing the way he does? It doesn't make a difference, right? So the reality is, if you like, in a, I don't mean to be cruel, but like, maybe this ain't the job for you. If you if you get that stress, right? Because every part of it is an attack on your mental well being. I was wondering what the compromise would be if she didn't want to speak to the media, but she wanted to perform at her job. My question hey, was. Pay the fines. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's so the- that, and that's what, and that's and that's where they fucked up. They fucked up because you have a a uh, a, pu- a penalty system of if you don't do this, you get fined. So okay, so she didn't do it. So fine her. Like the idea that they would ratchet up this thing if they wanted to, I guess they could ratchet up the fine money, but to make the punitive measures even greater because you, she didn't do what you wanted her to do is kind of ridiculous. I told the story on the radio yesterday of uh, the, the rookie transition program. And if you guys remember, in rookie transition, um, like, uh, if you don't, every every player entering the NBA has to do it, right? Doesn't matter if you've had an eight-year career in Europe. If this is your first year in the NBA, you got to go through it. So, uh, Allen Iverson missed his. And I said, well, what's the penalty? Well, you get fined, and you got to come back next year. So then he said, well, what if I don't come back, if I, don't, if I miss it next mm. year? It's like, well, you get fined, and then you got to mm. make it up the year after that. And so legend has it, Allen Iverson handed them a blank check and said, fill that out when I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all right. Like, he's willing to live with those consequences. He's willing, <laughs> and, and those are the consequences they can have. I thought, I mean, look, there's a lot about this story that's really murky, whether she tried to communicate this to them directly prior to or not. But at the end of the day, the most that she, that they can do is fine her or should be able to do is fine her for not doing it. And it's at that point where she has to make the decision, is this worth it? Are my issues strong enough where I'll pay the fine to play or I won't play at all? 
Or is it like, okay, maybe I can gut through this? We, we went through this a little bit, different reasons, obviously, but Kyrie Irving at the beginning of this season tried to pull this, and it's like, this is very clear. You get fined this much every time you miss one. And so Kyrie found out very quickly. We found out really quickly about Kyrie. He's like, how serious were you about this stance? Obviously not that serious. <laughs> I'm just uh, reminded for a quick story of um, – because she does have some leverage as maybe the biggest star in the game – and sometimes people can use their leverage to get out of fines. Uh, I reminded I had this friend back in college, his buddy. Of oh, mine. I thought you were going KD when he decided not to talk to the media because uh, a certain someone. Oh well, you know, um, maybe I could I could pivot to that too. But I, I had this buddy back in the day, and he was a total sociopath, wildly entertaining. He was a talented. Uh, performer. He was on Jay Leno as a magician at 12 years old. So he was he was just a complete uh, just uh, performer, but also somebody who didn't care if other people had an issue with him and any sort of disagreeability. So he was wait living. A second, in wait a second. So your buddy was Jay Bilzerian from Big Mouth. I'm doing a magic trick. I love magic. It's like juggling, but it's definitely more confrontational. That's for sure. Yeah, it's like one person playing cards at you. Okay, guys, shut up. Okay, anyway, I think I have something in my mouth. Is this your card? Well, Jay, I could barely tell that you had the card palmed in your hand when you reached into your mouth. <laughs> Damn it, Missy. He was living in one of the Berkeley co-ops, one of the big ones. It was called Casa Zimbabwe. It was a massive den of iniquity. Um, and I, I people don't really know about the co-op scene, but they can they can have college students. They can have, you know... People in their twenties and they're they're messy and there's crazy stuff going on there. And there was a, a homeless guy who was sleeping on the floor named Bop, and they decided that he could sleep there because he was the human embodiment of love. All sorts of crazy things. But the thing you need to do to make your price low is join in on the chores. You have to do your chores. That's why you don't pay too much money. It's this communal idea. Uh, my buddy, uh, my buddy Mike, he. Just refuse to do the chores. Just refuse to do the chores. We just hang out all day. That guy. He he just wouldn't do them. Didn't feel like it. And I would watch him when I would visit and everybody would be angry at him. He didn't care. He would just have a shit-eating grin. He'd walk into the kitchen like, hey, how you doing, Bobby? Oh, this guy. Oh, what's with the face? Ah, It's good to see you. And so they kept finding him. And it started at a grand and then they doubled it to two grand and then they doubled it to four grand and then eight grand. And pretty soon they're saying that we're finding you, uh, we're, you know, we're finding you like $36,000 at the end of the semester because you didn't do any chores. Well, my buddy Mike goes, okay, well, let's think about it. You know, I want to pay you, but, you know, I was looking into it and none of the building is up to earthquake code. Uh, nah. it's infested with rats. It's very interesting. And my you know dad is an inspector. You, you know so. about the hard drugs that you're dealing up there, um, on, on that floor. You, you know about that. I mean, we, we all do. I'm, I'm, I got my phone right here. I could call the police if, if you want me to. I mean, I, it's a problem that concerns me. I assume it concerns you. He never had to pay the fine. It was all, it was all washed away. So what you're saying matter. is Osaka has to blackmail, uh, the tennis in group? some form or fashion, I assume she knows where certain bodies are buried. I, I, I just know that leverage can be used at particular moments to get out of particular things. If you're the disagreeable sort of person who would uh, be okay with people hating you, as my friend was. That's a great, great story. And we have a great, great guest here. 
Mr. Ian Begley of SMY, our former colleague. Uh, how you doing, my man? What's happening, fellas? How are you? Oh, we are doing great. We are. Uh, we were talking about the media representation and and uh, or the the disagreements with Osaka and how it pertains to the NBA media. And I realized that, like Ian, you're living the whole daily press conference life, which I think I have extricated myself from. Um, whether that's good or bad, I'm I'm feeling less connected to the NBA world because of it. But um, when you hear these stories of uh, of people being like, "Oh, well, Osaka is doing what she needs to do," but also press conferences aren't all that fruitful anyway. Um, so what are we doing here? Like, if we're doing Zoom calls with Tom Thibodeau every day or Steve Nash, and they're going to give the same panned answer to most of the questions, are we just going through the motions? What's the value of press conferences? And I hear that to some extent. I actually think the point is is that Zoom conferences are not as valuable as like in-person um, dialogue that you could be having with Tibbs and growing that trust. But what is your what is your perspective on how the NBA press conference has changed over the past year or so and how much value you get out of it as a reporter for the Knicks, Nets, and, and all things New York for SMY? So the Zoom press conferences are tough. Just with the Knicks in particular, I don't know how other teams do it, but we don't get a follow-up question. So you're asking a question and eight times out of 10, you hear something in the answer that sparks your curiosity and leads naturally to a follow-up question. We're not getting a chance to answer those because of the nature of the Zoom arrangement. So that's been tough specifically to Zoom this season and part of last season when it was implemented. And I think that if you are tuning into a random press conference or you're watching team video on YouTube or press conference at the practice, you're probably going to hear some questions where you say, why was that asked? That is ridiculous. But I'm just speaking for myself. Sometimes I will ask a question that may on its face sound ridiculous, but there's a context to it and there's a pretext to it where maybe I've asked that person different questions about that topic and I'm looking to see how their temperature has changed on the topic. Um, so that is that to me is valuable because it helps inform my coverage. And, and other times, you know, because I'm on these things every day, the same people. And so for a beat reporter, it's helpful because even if Tom Thibodeau is asked about, let's say, about benching Alfred Payton for the 10th time in, you know, a, a two-month span, to me, he's a human being. So if his answer is a little bit different and that maybe betrays some of his thinking or how it is changed on the subject, that to me is valuable. And so just in general, like I would prefer that anyone who is criticizing the press conference setup, which certainly uh, it's fair to do so, I would prefer that we deal in specifics. So if you see something or you have an opinion that's based on a specific question that you saw, Let's reference that instead of painting this broad brush of uh, either press conferences or worthless and media asks ridiculous questions, or we need press conferences every day because it's an essential part of uh, our fandom. So I, you know, I just don't like the broad brush approach. Ian, you're you're burying the lead, man. It's this this clip you just posted on Twitter oh is why we need the press conferences. <laughs> 
I'm looking at it. The Ian Begley tweet, Atlanta's Clint Capella says the Knicks are, quote, They're trying to play tough. I mean, uh, push our guys around and talk But uh, we, we can do that too. Uh, and we show them uh, as soon as they, they, they came back here that we, we can push guys around too. Uh, we can talk shit as well. So what are you going to do about it? And we can get a win with it. So what are you going to do about it? Oh, game four, you're coming back again. Well, it's going to happen again. We win the game. We talk shit and we push around. So what are you going to do about it? So that's what happened. Uh, we can do it too. We can be physical, but we can win games as well. And now we're coming to your home to win this game again. They send you on vacation. Uh, that's old school. That's like, and honestly, it had like a WWF, I'm dating myself, WWF feel to it. If you watch the video, the way he delivered it, it's just incredible. And you don't see that a lot anymore. But, you know, for me, if, if there's a chance that I can get something like that from a player or from a fan, there's a chance I can see something like that, I'd be pro press conference. Ian, let, let me ask you a question. The when the bubble happened and obviously the zoom press conference was introduced, I remember talking to friends who were in the bubble and they all said the same thing. Like, Oh, we're never going back. They're never going to, this is what the NBA has dreamt of all, all along a way to limit the media as much as they can in the locker you're room. Kind of, you're saying. Yeah. You're neutered in, in your ability to, to perform journalism. Now that we've, gone through a year of non-bubble basketball, but still with the Zoom press conferences. Is that a sentiment that you share, or do you think that we're going to transition back to the way it used to be? I am I'm hopeful, but not optimistic that we would transition back to the way it was pre-pandemic. Uh, I have to finish the cynic, excuse me, in me says the players see this, this is a great setup for them, and the MBPA is going to push back hard against going back to the way it was. And I get it from a player's perspective. I wouldn't want somebody coming into my locker room, you know, 10 minutes after I finished working, just changed my clothes or having changed my clothes and firing away questions about what maybe didn't happen. Um, and so I understand it. But I, from my perspective, just being in that locker room daily, nightly, there's a value to it. Uh, you know, just one example, like if I, let's say, the Knicks or the Nets, the Knicks sign a player. And I don't know that player. The player doesn't know me. Uh, but I'm showing up every day to games and practices. And, you know, kind of gets a feel for how I approach my job. I get a feel for him. And then, you know, I could pull him off to the side, have a side conversation, and kind of can develop a relationship that way, which better informs your coverage. So if we, we only have these Zoom calls, then that gets taken away and if that's the case and so be it. Everybody has to adapt. But I would prefer the locker room access. Did you ever talk to Friedel, Nick Friedel, before you covered Thibodeau just for a pep talk on how to cover Tibbs? <laughs> I feel like we texted. Uh and and the problem for me is when Tibbs was hired and even throughout the whole coaching search, I was trying to work and chase after my two kids and we had, you know, nobody was around to really help. So my life was crazy um, at that point. So I feel like Nick and I touched base, but we didn't get a chance to talk. I do need to call him, though, to get to, to download him a little bit on uh, on tips. 
I'd imagine you, you've built up a rapport with him so far this year. And I remember Ethan, Amin, and I, we've we've gotten to touch, we, we've gotten to like actually hang out with Tibbs behind the scenes. And he's like a totally different person than when he's on the show. Chocular. And him and Fridell, both of them have two of the best laughs in the NBA scene. It's <laughs> great, incredible belly laughs those two have. So... Yeah, it's funny. His reputation and maybe how he's behind the scenes as a coach cuts against what he's like if you're a media person, which, uh, you know, it doesn't always go that way. I feel like Rick Carlisle's the same kind of hard-edged guy either way. Oh, by the way, this is a total— Nobody likes Rick Carlisle in real life either. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know, but like Tibbs, Tibbs like what, what Tom just expressed, that is something that is a widely held. Like a lot of people like Tibbs. You get him out of the gym, and he's he's great. Same thing with Stan Van Gundy. Same thing with PJ Carlissimo. Like all the notorious like hard ass coaches behind the scenes. Like when they're away from the game, they're awesome. Yeah, Carlisle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is a total digression, but because everyone's talking about Palace Brawl and how the fans doing crazy stuff, we've had a flare up of it. It seems like a trend. Uh, Mike cause one. I, I rewatched the clip yesterday because I just wanted to go, okay, so let's see what went down here. What was it like? What struck me, and I'm not saying I'd handle the situation any better. I, I might have handled it more more scared, more cowardly, is how much Coach Rick Carlisle shrunk in the moment. Um, nobody ever talks about this, but his team's going insane, jumping in the stands, beating – he is just nowhere to be seen. And Van Gundy's and he, pulling on Zoe's leg, like trying to, like, come on. Yeah, yeah. And, and, There's and, no JVG. Yeah, yeah. And and when he leaves the court because fans are throwing things, he's ducking. He's having a guy, uh, he's cower, He's literally cowering as he exits. And he's having another guy kind of shield him with a folder. Meanwhile, Larry Brown is actually going to center court and like, people, people. He's trying to calm down people and be a leader. Time out. Hey, Radio Ethan had a had a question for you about um, Rick Carlisle during the Malice in the Palace rewatch that you did last week. What was your thought, Radio Ethan, on Rick Carlisle? First of all, soft, soft. You do not let your players jump into the stands. You, sir, were a former player. You should have the athleticism to maybe get in there, grab a Ron Artest by his haunches, and 86 I'm like a bartender. How about that? What about that? But no, no. Oh, it's it's player empowerment back in the early 2000s. Go, let your freak flag fly, man. Punch a fan, bro. Do whatever you want, dude. That's the kind of coaching or lack thereof I saw from slick Rick Carlisle sneaking off the court so he didn't have any responsibility over what happened. I like how you got him. Uh, you got him as like a hippie from the 60s. <laughs> like, free love. <laughs> free punches i was also uh, a little bit i don't know if the word is impressed but there's this idea i remember seeing the bill burr routine of these fans are just gobsmacked when the players jumped into the stands and started beating the hell out of them I, i'm not endorsing this behavior but i watched it again and i thought man these detroit fans are they're rough man yeah they like, were a actually, lot of them are yeah. punching back like i you know you would think everybody would have just ducked and covered and ran uh, but no, a lot of them are punching, and when they got punched, they went crazy throwing even more stuff, and they were raining beverages and everything else. It was just a true 
out of control situation on all fronts and it didn't totally fit my memory of it. Ian, do you have a sense that COVID has impacted fan behavior at the arena? We're seeing it, right? I mean, I think it's it's in front of us. The idea that Kevin Durant referenced this the other night, people have been inside for a year plus and now everybody's kind of gathering again and the behavior is what we've seen. Seeing people, you know, getting out of hand, crossing lines. And so I think that it has to be a factor. I mean, people were jerks. I'm just speaking for my own experience going to sporting sport in New York. People were jerks pre-COVID. And, it, you know, that just, that exists. And it existed. And it was an issue that was dealt with from time to time. But I think, you know, the frequency of it uh, more recently since we've gone back to these capacity or near-capacity crowds, you can't tell me that COVID and, and people being cooped up for a year hasn't factored into today. I have a theory that it's also social media is that because people have been on social media so much over the past year and they can, with impunity, going after athletes or, or posting whatever they want and there's no cost to that. There's no there's no punishment to that. And then in reality, they feel like when they go to a game and there's Joel Embiid, you can post on his socials without any sort of repercussion and now you might say something over the line in his presence because you're so conditioned over the past year to have no friction in that. And you can say whatever you want and not have uh, any sort of payback for that. And I think combined with the the fact that people have kind of lost a little bit what social interactions are supposed to be like or what it used to be because we were so out of shape on that. But um, I also worry about in the copycatness of this and not to go all like Columbine here, but like the idea of if one person gets famous for running onto the court and slapping the backboard, ha, 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 ha. I almost wonder if we need to ban not just the person for life, but like his party that he bought his tickets with. Because then then it becomes like, then it becomes like, hey man, don't do it because I like, don't don't do that to us, right? So this this is this is my my thing. If it's a single ticket purchase like that, you have a uh, a kind of a feature on the third party seller's site, whether it's SeatGeek, whether it's Ticketmaster, even if it's the official team marketplace, secondary ticket marketplace, that if you are ejected for the game for unruly behavior, yada 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 you are subject to additional fines to be charged to the credit card that we have on file. Like, I think that's the only way you could, you got to make people think if I do this, there's another 10 G's that's coming on that, that I'm going to hit with after this. Yeah. It can't yeah. be, you're kicked out and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And we, well, I mean, we've seen that in the most recent examples, but I think more often than not, a fan who's going to get kicked out for cursing or starting a fight, the security is just going to toss them out of the arena and that's it. There's some, significant penalty financially that goes with it. I think that was interesting. Well, and in the case of the Knicks, MSG, that's a wide purview. Right. Uh, if you're kicked out of the entire ecosystem of MSG, you're losing out on concerts, you're losing on, you're losing out on St. John's basketball, uh, and probably a bunch of other stuff I can't even remember. So, yeah. I thought you were going to put a different rap, uh, Ethan, and mention you can get kicked out for saying self-team or wearing a Yes, <laughs> you can get kicked out by you know being a six foot eight uh, power forward uh, who. That's where I thought you were going. Yeoman's or, work or a five foot four filmmaker. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not asking 
ask you a question about the spike thing. I wanted to zero in on a serious note about Madison Square Garden yeah. is one of a handful of arenas around the league that has facial recognition technology. Because I had a question someone asked me the other day. It was like, well, how can they enforce the ban? I was like, well, I know they can do it at the Garden for sure because they've done this. And, and Ian, you're right. They've done it to people who have said disparaging remarks about the team on social media posts, on Facebook or on uh, JD and the Straight Shot on their Facebook page. Someone wrote, sell the Knicks. And then at a future Nick date, had security approach him in his seat. And there's no way to tie him with this post other than the use of facial recognition software. I missed that one, first of all. That one flew under my radar somehow. I didn't I didn't hear about it. I need to uh, I need to do my research on that. That's that would be new to me, but certainly the facial recognition technology is there and they've down. Uh, do any of you guys know is it how prevalent is it with other arenas. I, I talked to somebody who said probably two-thirds of the arenas in the league have it. And I was shocked. I, I don't know how prevalent it is, but if you get an iPhone 12 right now, it's going to use facial recognition to unlock the phone. So this is happening. Like This is... But it's different it, when you're walking through a ticket. That's a, that's different. One, it's, it's your... First of all, obviously, your personal device, right? But two, you're holding it up here as opposed to you in a crowd of thousands... Walking around in in a in a concourse. No, no, it's way creepier. I I agree, it's way creepier. I just think that it, it just seems like this is the direction we're heading, and it's going to be a rather efficient. I mean, there are a ton of downsides potentially uh, if we really want to get into it. But when people are saying, "How could they possibly know?" You know, you could sneak into the arena. I don't think that's going to be the case. I I also just think, is this an issue we're trying to solve because it's prevalent this week? And it's going to burn itself out. No, but that's my question is, do you believe in the copycat theory that like, if we have a few of them, then there's going to be a bunch. Who wants to be these guys? I mean, it seems like this is not good for your life if you're known as the the, the Celtics guy with the shirtless jersey. I mean, do you want to be that guy? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's a, like anything good is happening for him off of this, right? If those people thought through the decision to that degree, they wouldn't be doing it in the first place. So I don't think, you know, these are not people who are considering all the ramifications of what they do. I could see a, I I could definitely see a naked guy running on the court with a buy crypto sign or something like that happening. But as far as doing something malicious, there just doesn't seem to be any upside to that. And hell, fans have been streaking onto the, fields and courts for time immemorial and we've all lived i think the main issue is somebody doing something malicious uh throwing things spitting that sort of stuff is really the the behavior that that needs to be curbed but it it does there is this um undercurrent with the whole thing of kind of a mutual animosity bubbling up between fan and player um and that's why this whole thing is getting tethered to the Kyrie stomping on the leprechaun guy deal. It, it does seem like something's happened where something between the two sides has gotten broken where they don't feel perhaps like they need each other so much or they resent each other. Um, and it, it's hard to pull on all of those threads and figure it out. But I, I, I do think that's an aspect of it. Is this the happiest or least resentful of Knicks fans and players? Like, I'd imagine most players around the league, Kyrie doing it to an opponent, but I was curious if Knicks fans are the happiest that they've been since you've been covering the team. Without a doubt. I mean, there's no, <laughs> I, well, I should say this. The Jeremy Lin run 
was was at the top of that list. 2012, 2013, I think is below this because everyone thought that this team was going to win 20 games and no one saw Julius Randle's regular season coming. Uh, no one saw the leap that RJ Barrett was going to make. And there's a pride in the way Tom Thibodeau has coached this group. So I think, yes, elation. We put it at number two on the list, right below insanity. Uh, just because everyone has been so starving for this kind of team uh, for so long. And it came in a year that no one expected it. So certain, certainly elation, although uh, these last four games, I think, have, have soured the mood a little bit. Uh, I shouldn't even say a little bit, a lot, depending on what kind of fan you are, because people expected more from these big teams in the postseason. Ian, I know you got to run, but thank you for joining us. and Enjoy the Zooms. I, I, I hope you have a lot more to go. We have a 24-hour Lebetard watch along on on uh, on Friday on Friday night, and I don't think the Knicks. Maybe the Knicks will be on that one if, if Friday night is Game Six. Hopefully, we'll be able to watch it together. Clint Capella doesn't think so. <laughs> Man, good to see you guys. Good to be with you guys. Appreciate you. All right, that's Ian Begley of SMY. Thanks for joining us. Um, you mentioned the Kyrie thing, Ethan. I didn't see it in real time, and then I saw the replay. Like Kyrie was deliberately doing this so someone would catch him doing it on TV. And when Ky- when KG caught him on it and called him out on social media, like, like Kyrie can't back from this. Like this, he was deliberately trying to aggravate uh, Celtics fans with that. I mean, there's so many layers to it because I do think the media move is to lecture fans. By the way, it doesn't have any connection to the to the guy who threw the bottle, does it? I mean, did that guy see that? Ironically, that's what. People who are attacking Kyrie using as the crux of their things. Like he th- well, you can't step on Lucky. Yeah, I, I don't think that dude saw that. Uh, but there is this general thing happening, and it doesn't mean he deserves – this is why it's hard to parse these things on social media. It doesn't mean that he deserves to have stuff thrown at him, but he is antagonizing that fan base. I mean, he's going out of his way to do it, and – I feel there might be too many media people lecturing Celtics fans and how silly and stupid they are for not liking that their logo is getting stomped on. I mean, it's really it's everything symbols. It's like it's silly that if I raise the middle finger at you, you're going to be offended. It's just a phalange flapping in the air. <laughs> but the, the difference, the difference, Ethan, there's a couple of things. Number one is, yes, the middle finger thing would be. I guess a worthy example, if we also spent much of two and a half hours just doing this to each other anyway, right? (laughs) Throwing middle fingers to each other. But we hold our hands up. I mean, it's a specific, you take the fingers uh, down. My thing is, like, if if lucky, if I just want a screen grab of all of us giving each other (laughs) the finger for the. the, (laughs) Well, I'll even get it up. <laughs> well, well, look, you didn't pass. But, 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 like, well, but, but, I, I don't want to uh, be part of this because yeah, that was but, going but, see, the, but this is my point. This everything's contextual. We're doing it now, and it's yeah. funny. But if <laughs> right. somebody cuts you off when you're driving, and you go, ah, then we're, you're not being funny. And it's like, yeah, Heathen. Here, here's the reality, man. Like, a, if you didn't want it to get stepped on, don't put it on the floor. Right? It's not on a couch <laughs> or whatever. B, uh, Zach Harper brought up this one. He said. If it had happened to Hugo the on the Hugo the Hornet logo in Charlotte, <laughs> would all these people in Boston be irate, right? And no. then C, and this is the most important part, right? This is the most important part of it. If there's someone to be offended and take action, it's none of the 17,000 people in the arena. It's 15 dudes who play for the Celtics. And 
I guess Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens and whoever else is getting oh, a yeah. paycheck from Wick Grosbeck. The idea that anyone should feel any sort of thing. Why? Because you fucking root for this laundry? You have nothing to do with this. Mm. But when you start breaking it down that way, the issue is it's all absurd and it's all ridiculous. And when people start thinking like that, then we just don't have we don't have sports anymore. Like we need people to have some sort of stupid attachment to the symbols and to the tribal loyalty. I just find it I find it interesting that Kyrie Irving he strikes me as someone who would say, I do this job, I show up, I play basketball, and then everything outside of my life is nothing to do with basketball. Like, it is it is my job. And then he goes and does this, which it seems like he's playing into the theatrics of sport and the fandom and the, it's not just basketball part of it, right? Like, this is the not just, this is the more religious part of basketball that he's He's trying to antagonize, and we can say that they're silly for being antagonized by it, but that's exactly what he's trying to do to them in this weird toxic relationship between Kyrie and the Boston Celtics fans that's been been going on a while. Incidentally, um, I did not know uh, that the Leprechaun logo was designed by Red Auerbach's brother. Do you guys know this? Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, what I was struck by, um, uh, Ethan, is that um, you didn't know that Hugo the Hornet, and I mean, I, I guess this is more to you, that Hugo and the Hornet and Lucky the Leprechaun are cousins, distant cousins. So yes, it would make sense that <laughs> the Celtics fans would stand up when Hugo got got hit. Are they distant cousins? <laughs> Don't ask me. Did Red Auerbach's cousin do that one? It's just on the basketball reference page for Hugo the Hornet. I think we need to take, but wait a second, we need to take like a little aside just to, and we can laugh at this, I think, that because I know Red Orbach's Jewish, his brother Zang is Jewish. There's something funny to be about in the 1950s coming to the New York Jewish guy and saying, hey, who should be the Celtic symbol in this Irish city? It's like, okay, just draws this leprechaun. Here you go. <laughs> like back in the 50s, that's all fine. That's all fine and everybody's cool with it. I thought you were going with their cousin Buford Auerbach down in Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little hornet here. Got, got himself some sneakers, some hot tops. Yeah, no, that 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 is funny. They they they, they uh they are so affectionate towards something that's clearly a mocking caricature of their dumbass city. This is a a, a, a hey. Jewish guy from New York was asked, "Hey, what do you think people in Boston? You know, the, these Irish people of Boston are like." Okay, I'll draw this. I mean, this is what I think. I mean, it's back in the day. I shudder to think what uh, Red Arbach's brother would have thought. All right, now, now we need one for Atlanta. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Well, my question is like, how how tri- how game is Tristan Thompson to put up that fight? Being like, yeah, I wear Celtics green. Celtics green now. You, you you step on Lucky the Leprechaun, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mess you up. Like Radio Ethan. Um, I don't know if you saw this on the on the news. Kevin Garnett was really upset with Kyrie Irving for stomping on Lucky the Leprechaun, the logo for the Celtics in midcourt, and then scraping him as he was coming off the floor. What were your thoughts on that? I was disgusted by the actions of one Kyrie Irving, but as disgusted as I was by Kyrie Irving, let me tell you who else I'm mad at. Where are the Celtics players, folks? Where are they? Lucky's little. He can't defend himself. Haven't you ever seen an 80s movie? You see a small kid getting bullied by a big boy 
You gotta step in and defend him. That's dignity. That's honor. Lucky is a leprechaun. That means he's little. Plus, he's on the floor. Who is going to rise to the occasion to defend the honor of Lucky and all of Celtic's fandom? It's gotta be you. You're in the trenches. You're the soldiers. You're the warriors. You can't sleep on this particular job. You can't go on Instagram. You have to lay Kyrie Irving out. You have to make him fall so hard that he thinks the world is even flatter than what he thought before he got knocked to it.